This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you this week for the Jewish News Hour. This week I'll start reading from JTA. The first article, Tennessee court rules couple has the right to sue foster care agency that denied them services because they are Jewish, by Jackie Hodgdenberg. A Jewish couple has grounds to sue a state-funded foster care and adoption agency that denied them services because they are Jewish, a Tennessee appeals court ruled Thursday. The decision is the latest development in the long-running battle that began in 2021 when Elizabeth and Gabriel Rutan Ram turned to the Holston United Methodist Home for Children in Greenville, Tennessee for foster parent training. The couple hoped to foster and later adopt a child. According to the lawsuit the couple filed last year, the agency declined to work with them because they were Jewish. A Tennessee state law passed in 2020 allows adoption agencies not to place children in homes that violate the agency's religious or moral convictions or policies. The couple was open about being Jewish, with Gabriel Rutan Ram telling JTA last year that they would have seen the mezuzah on the door as well as a painting of the western wall in the house. The lawsuit, which the Rutan Rams filed with the support of Americans United for separation of church and state, takes aim at the law, which was principally intended to exempt agencies from working with same-sex couples. But later last year, a three-judge panel dismissed their claims on technical grounds, as the Rutan Rams have received state support in fostering a teenage girl whom they are introducing to Jewish life. Thursday's ruling reverses that decision, with another three-judge panel ruling that the couple has the right to sue as prospective foster parents and as taxpayers, lacking access to the same services available to Christians. Joining the Rutan Rams in their lawsuit were six other Tennessee taxpayers, four of them faith leaders, who objected to their tax dollars being used to fund religious discrimination in foster care. The lawsuit itself will now be considered by a trial court in the state. Liz and Gabe Rutan Rams suffered outrageous discrimination because they are Jewish, Rachel Laser, president and CEO of Americans United, said in a statement. This loving couple wanted to help a child in need, only to be told that they couldn't get services from a taxpayer-funded agency because they're the the wrong religion. Next from JTA, Holocaust grave sites identified in Latvia and Netherlands using contemporary technology, by Jackie Hodgdenberg. A mass grave of Jews killed by the Nazis has been identified in Latvia following decades of searching. Separately, the body of a World War II Jewish resistance fighter buried in a mass grave has been identified in the Netherlands. The grave in Latvia was located using technology created by American researchers, LTV News Service reported Wednesday. It holds the bodies of dozens of Jews murdered by the Nazis in July 1941 in the western Latvian city of Lipaya. The massacre, one of a series of Nazi mass murders of thousands of Jews in the area over the course of that year, was filmed by German soldier Reinhard Wiener and the footage survived the war. Wiener's film includes shots of the trenches where the Jews were murdered, as well as the city's historic lighthouse. For decades, researchers had tried to use the lighthouse as a landmark in order to identify the exact location of the mass graves, but those efforts were unsuccessful. 
This summer, a team of students and researchers led by Harry Joel and Martin Goethe from the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire and Philip Reeder from Duquesne University in Pittsburgh were invited to Lipaya to search for the grave. Using soil sampling and georadar analysis, they were able to locate the mass burial site from 82 years ago. There are historical maps that we can compare with our data and see changes in the soil layers, Joel told Latvian public media. We can use the dendrological method determined by the age of trees. There is also a relatively new technique for soils, optically stimulated luminescence dating. According to Latvian press reports, the researchers are certain that the grave they located is the one filmed by Wiener and are looking for documents and testimony to betray that finding. The area of the mass grave is currently being leased by a Lithuanian fish processing company. Ilana Ivanova, a representative of the Jewish community of Lipaya, told LTV News Service. Ilya Lensky, director of the Museum of Jews in Latvia, told LTV News Service that he believes the site should be marked as a memorial to honor the Jews who died there. Gunars Ansins, the mayor of Lipaya, said that discussions are ongoing in the municipal council to address what to do with the site. In the Netherlands, the body of Jewish resistance hero Bernard Luza was also identified in a mass grave, according to a statement from the Dutch Defense Ministry, published Tuesday. Luza was executed by a firing squad in 1943 when he was 39, after he and hundreds of Jews were arrested following a raid on a factory in Amsterdam the previous year. Luza was a member of the Dutch Communist Party and People's Militia and joined the resistance after the Nazi takeover of the Netherlands in May 1940. He was accused of distributing an illegal newspaper and encouraging acts of sabotage. Now, through the use of DNA technology employed in a relationship study, his remains were finally identified, said Gert Jonker, head of the ministry's forensic unit specializing in identifying human remains, according to Agence France Presse. According to the ministry statement, the ministry ascertained Luza's identity after a cousin of his was identified in Australia. In 1945, Luza's body was discovered and buried along with four others. Two of those bodies were identified soon after as those of Theodorus Kramer and Karel Abraham, and a third was identified a decade ago as Nicholas van der Horst, but Luz's remained a mystery until this year. Just two months after they received a farewell letter from Luza before his execution, his wife Clara and his daughter Eva were murdered at the Nazi Sobibor extermination camp. Luz's father, Solomon, and five of his siblings were also murdered at Auschwitz, and Sobibor. And next, California Jewish groups on guard against anti-Semitism welcome state's mandate that ethnic studies classes avoid bigotry by Jacob Gervis. Los Angeles. California Jewish groups applauded a letter from the state's education board saying that the high school that high school courses meeting an ethnic studies mandate must avoid bias, bigotry, or discrimination against any person or group of persons. The letter comes at the start of the school year and nearly two years after Governor uh, Gavin Newsom signed legislation making California the first state to require all public high school students to complete a semester-long course in ethnic studies. California Jewish groups aired concerns that curriculums they feel are anti-Israel or anti-Semitic will be used at school districts across the state. 
The goal of the ethnic studies requirement is to increase knowledge of the state's ethnic minorities and their histories. The graduation requirement in the topic is set to take full effect in 2029, and schools must begin offering such courses in 2025. Many schools have already begun offering the courses. The effort has been mired in controversy since a draft of a model curriculum was published in 2019 that, Jewish groups said, excluded their experiences and included anti-Israel sections. Newsom came out against that draft and revisions of the model curriculum removed the anti-Israel content and added lessons on the experiences of Jews in California. But school districts are still free to determine their own ethnic studies curricula. According to Jay, the Jewish News of Northern California, advocates of the original draft who blamed right-wing pressure for the revisions are encouraging districts to adopt curricula that better reflect the first draft. A letter from dozens of Jewish leaders across the state to Newsom and other state officials sent in late June claimed that anti-Semitic and anti-Israel content was being taught as schools began to introduce the new courses. These challenges have led our community organizations to invest thousands of hours toward ensuring ethnic studies courses will not promote bias, bigotry, or discrimination against Jewish and Israeli students, reads the letter, which was spearheaded by the Jewish Public Affairs Committee of California, or JPAC, and co-signed by local Jewish federations and branches of the Anti-Defamation League and the American Jewish Committee. Wednesday's letter, signed by Brooks Allen, the executive director of the California State Board of Education, appears to come in response to those concerns. It reiterated three requirements for ethnic studies courses, mandating that they be appropriate for use with students coming from a range of backgrounds, not reflect or promote bias or discrimination, and not promote religious doctrine. In addition, the letter cautioned the Education Board learned that some vendors were offering materials that may not meet the requirements of the legislation, particularly the second requirement above, regarding avoiding bias and discrimination. The letter called that requirement an important guardrail highlighted when the bill was signed. Jewish groups, including JPAC, thanked Newsom and the Education Board for the letter. JPAC called the governor a consistent ally to the Jewish community and added that the letter constituted a major step in the right direction. There is still a lot of work ahead to implement robust ethnic studies courses across California schools that are also free from anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism, JPAC's statement said. We know the governor will continue to work with us in this effort. Next from California are self-driving cars kosher. San Francisco rabbis weigh in as robo-taxis flood the city's streets by Maya Mirsky. And this is um, written and distributed through Jay, the Jewish News of Northern California. Ask a rabbi about self-driving cars and you'd better be ready for a long answer. Self-driving cars, also known as robo-taxis, autonomous vehicles, or driverless cars, with their whirring sensors and their odd, almost tentative movements, have become a familiar sight on the streets of San Francisco. Familiar they might be, but not without controversy. With local incidents of self-driving cars trying to drive into active fire zones, stalling en masse, and even crashing into a fire truck this month, reports of autonomous misconduct have been plentiful. Regardless, the California Public Utilities Commission in mid-August expa- August expanded commercial robo-taxi service to daytime hours 
in San Francisco for GM's Cruise and Alphabet's Waymo Autonomous Vehicle Divisions. City officials are opposed to the expansion, citing safety and other concerns. And yet the all-electric fleets offer intriguing Shabbat possibilities, not, the le- not least for observant Jews who traditionally refrain from driving and using electricity on the day. So what do local rabbis say? As an Orthodox Jew, in order to evaluate new realities, they are going to try to understand how they work and categorize them within already existing precedent in Jewish law, said Rabbi Joel Landau of, of Adath Israel, an Orthodox synagogue in San Francisco. There is one existing piece of technology that might offer a clue, he said. It's the Shabbat elevator, which automatically stops and opens its doors at each floor, negating the need to press a button. It may seem that an autonomous vehicle, if pre-programmed, could possibly meet the same requirements as a Shabbat elevator, but Landau said it's not that simple. Not everyone is happy with a Shabbat elevator, he said. Many elevators make adjustments based on the weight of the passenger, he said, which negates their neutrality, so to speak. By contrast, a running escalator or moving walkway might be okay. If self-driving cars react to a passenger's weight or position, that alone might rule them out for Shabbat use among observant Jews. The same is true if riders would need to activate anything to start the ride. Landau said he sure the technological know-how to make a Shabbat-compliant autonomous electric car could be developed. He's just not sure it should be. The issue of driving on Shabbat was addressed in the conservative movement back in the 1950s when rabbis allowed driving to synagogue for service as Jews moved into the suburbs and lived too far from the shul to walk. Still, the movement does not encourage driving on Shabbat. The ideal is that one does not drive on Shabbat and that people live close by to their Jewish communities to walk to synagogue, share meals, raise families. Rabbi Amanda Russell of Congregation Beth Shalom, a conservative synagogue in San Francisco, wrote in an email to Jay. But not everyone can reach that ideal, she said. We know that to be in community on Shabbat, many people have to drive. But what about self-driving robo-taxis? Would they be better than driving? Funny you should ask about this, Russell said. These cars have become a small topic of conversation at Beth Shalom simply because they are taking up precious parking spots in the early morning for daily minion and on Shabbat. Annoyance aside, Russell said the question comes down to the way the cars operate, what they are used for, and whether they undermine the spirit of Shabbat. If prearranged and prepaid, she said, self-driving cars could be more ideal on Shabbat than someone driving even an electric car. So, how do self-driving cars really work? Could they really be Shabbat compliant? To put it simply, an autonomous car is equipped with an array of sensors and imaging devices, including cameras and LiDAR, which is the spinning device atop the cars that uses light to measure distance. While GPS helps the car map its route, it's all those sensors that help the car navigate a chaotic street environment. Right now, riders access the cars through apps on their phone, uh, on their phones, but prearranging a robo-taxi pickup is possible. To make it permissible, one would want to make the arrangements before Shabbat. Pick up and drop off locations, payment, etc., Russell said. That would prevent the passenger from having to use their phone, any rideshare-related technology, and any form of money, all of which are prohibited on Shabbat. 
Russell and Landau both said that focusing on keeping the spirit of Shabbat is a crucial guide. Landau said that even if self-driving cars can technically be used, an assumption that hasn't been truly tested yet. He doesn't believe that most observant Jews will tap on the Waymo app a few minutes before sundown on Friday. Not everything you could do, you should do, Landau said. Next from JTA, ADL to TMZ. Bradley Cooper's Leonard Bernstein nose in Maestro is not anti-Semitic by Gabe Friedman. The Anti-Defamation League agrees with Leonard Bernstein's family. Bradley Cooper's prosthetic nose in the upcoming Maestro biopic is not an anti-Semitic portrayal of the celebrated Jewish conductor. Throughout history, Jews were often portrayed in anti-Semitic films and propaganda as evil caricatures with large hooked noses. This film, which is a biopic on the legendary conductor Leonard Bernstein, is not that. The group, which monitors and responds to anti-Semitism, wrote in a statement first published by TMZ on Monday. The American Jewish Committee also sent the celebrity news site a statement defending Cooper. We do not believe that this depiction harms or denigrates the Jewish community. After the film's trailer dropped last week, criticism erupted over Cooper's apparent prosthesis. Some said Cooper's appearance was redolent of anti-Semitic stereotypes about Jewish noses, while others went further and said it was a literal embodiment of Jew face, a critical phrase that has come to refer to portrayals of Jews by non-Jewish actors. The ADL statement did not weigh in on the broader question of Jew face. A day after the trailer's release, Bernstein's three children released a statement in defense of Cooper, who also directed the film. It happens to be that Leonard Bernstein had a nice big nose, the statement read. Bradley chose to use makeup to amplify his resemblance, and we're perfectly fine with that. We're also certain that our dad would have been fine with it as well. At all times during the making of the film, we could feel the profound respect and, yes, the love that Bradley brought to his portrait of Leonard, it added. Maestro follows decades of Bernstein's life and his relationship with actress Felicia Montalegre. Bernstein, who died in 1990, was considered one of the most influential figures in classical music in the 20th century, winning 16 Grammy Awards and countless other honors. And next we go over to the New York Jewish Week. Visiting Israel, Eric Adams meets with anti-government protesters by Ben Sales. On his first trip to Israel as mayor, Eric Adams made all of the expected stops, meeting with the prime minister and president, visiting the Western Wall and the Yad Vashem Holocaust Museum, sampling from the offerings of the country's tech scene. But he added another less traditional agenda item, a meeting with two organizers of the ongoing mass protest movement against the Israeli government's judicial overhaul. The 40-minute meeting, which took place Tuesday at the David Citadel Hotel in Jerusalem, made Adams one of the most influential officials in the United States to engage directly with the protest movement while on a visit to Israel. Brooklyn Representative Hakeem Jeffries and New York Senator Chuck Schumer, the Democratic leaders in the House of Representatives and the Senate, did not meet with protest leaders on their own trips earlier this year. Karine Nahon, one of the protest organizers who met with Adams, celebrated the meeting as a sign of her movement's impact. The significance is, first of all, in the meeting itself, the fact that senior leaders are coming and are meeting with leaders of the protests. Nahon a professor who studies information and society at Israel's Reichman University told the New York Jewish Week. 
I think that in the last eight months, many of the things happening in Israel are stemming from the protests. The protest movement, which has brought hundreds of thousands of Israelis to the streets weekly since the beginning of the year, opposes the Israeli government's ongoing effort to weaken the country's Supreme Court. The first component of the legislation passed in July and Prime Minister Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has vowed to resume pushing the plan forward in the fall. Adams met with a range of religious and business leaders and said that the three-day trip is focused on fighting anti-Semitism, increasing public safety, and deepening connections between New York City and Israel's tech industry. He met with Israeli President Isaac Herzog, Foreign Minister Eli Cohen, Jerusalem Mayor Moshe Leon, and Yisrael Gantz, an official from Israel's West Bank settlements, among other dignitaries. He also visited the Western Wall, where a picture released by his office showed him wearing a bracelet that said Hustle while placing his hands on the wall's stones and laid a wreath at Yad Vashem. Adams met with Netanyahu later on Tuesday and in a press conference that day, declined to take a position on the judicial overhaul. That sets him apart from other Democratic leaders, including President Joe Biden, who has repeatedly cautioned against the legislation in strong terms. It was great to meet also the leaders of Israel's protest movement and just hear their thoughts because these are historical moments, and I think we should all watch the history play out in all of our countries, Adams said. And I just want it to be, uh, want it to be here, not to interfere, but just to learn. And I'm aware that my trip comes at a pivotal moment for Israel, and I believe the people of Israel will make the determination on how they want to move forward. He also tweeted a picture from the meeting, writing, had an honest conversation with two leaders in Israel's protest movement this morning about numerous issues at play here. I appreciate the opportunity to hear their diverse perspective. The meeting was organized by the UJA Federation of New York, which helped facilitate the mayor's visit to Israel. Along with Nahon and the mayor, the meeting was attended by tech advise investor and fellow protest organizer Gigi Levy-Weiss and UJA Federation CEO Eric Goldstein. UJA Federation, which is a funder of the 70 Faces Media, the New York Jewish Week's parent company, referred all questions about his meeting to the mayor's office. His office, in turn, referred his comments, uh, referred to his comments at the press conference. Hank Scheinkopf, a longtime New York City political consultant, called Adams the greeter-in-chief and said he wasn't surprised by the mayor's meeting with protest leaders. The meeting, Scheinkopf said, could be part of Adams' efforts to prove his bona fides to the city's progressive Jewish voters. Adams is trying to be, when it comes to Israel and it comes to Jews, all things to all people, Scheinkopf said. He's got a lock on the more conservative and orthodox Hasidic groups. What he needs to do is get more of the liberals, and they're in places like Upper West Side and Park Slope, and he needs to get more of their votes in 2025. It makes him appear even-handed. Nahon said Adams largely stuck to asking questions in the meeting and didn't express his opinion on the judicial overhaul, though she felt he understood the protest's message. She and Levy Weiss, she said, aim to describe the overhaul and why they believe it will harm Israeli democracy by undermining the country's checks and balances and separation of powers. The importance of preserving Israel as a Jewish and democratic state, that's what this fight is about, Nahon said, describing their message to Adams, 
And we said clearly you can't be only a Jewish state because then you essentially lose all your legitimacy, everything we've built here over the last 75 years. On the other hand, you can't be only a democratic state. This combination of Jewish and democratic is what sustains us. The overhaul's proponents believe the legislation will curb an overly activist court system and allow the government to be better uh, to better represent the country's right-wing majority. The overhaul did not feature in a nearly three-minute video Netanyahu's office posted to social media, which showed Adams and the Prime Minister's staffs meeting in a conference room, as well as the mayor tasting some products of Israel's food tech startups. Throughout his visit, Mayor Adams has engaged in a range of activities and met with a variety of individuals that represent the diversity of Israel. A spokesperson for the Israeli consulate in New York told the New York Jewish Week when asked about the meeting with protest organizers, we respect his approach and the freedom of dialogue it represents. Nahon said she hopes the meeting leads Adams and other officials to reflect the voices of Israel's citizens and their views and remarks about the country. It's very important that everyone who loves Israel and is friends with Israel embraces the Israeli public, she said. I want to see them make statements of support for the Israeli public that's fighting. Next from JTA, woman killed in West Bank shooting two days after Israeli father and son shot to death in Huwara by Felissa Kramer. An Israeli woman was killed and her driver injured in a shooting attack outside Hebron last Monday, the latest in a string of deadly attacks in the West Bank that included the killing last Saturday of a father and son in Huwara. Shai Negrecker, 60, and his son Aviad Nir, 28, had traveled to the Palestinian town from their home in Ashdod to do errands when they were shot to death while at a gas station. The town was the site of riots by Jewish settlers in February after two Jewish brothers were shot to death there. The victim of Monday's shooting was identified as Batsheva Nigri, 40, a resident of the West Bank settlement of Beit Haggai. She was riding in a car on Route 60, the highway that runs the length of the West Bank. Her young daughter was in the car but was unharmed, according to local reports. In both cases, according to Israeli media, Hamas and Palestinian Jihad praised the attacks but did not claim credit for them. The attacks come amidst a surge in violence in the West Bank and Israel, which has included West Bank shooting attacks like the ones last week, attacks by Palestinians within Israel, and frequent military raids on Palestinian cities. Since the beginning of the year, more than two dozen Israelis and more than 100 West Bank Palestinians have been killed in the violence. Israel's defense minister, Yoav Kalant, has reportedly called an emergency meeting focused on the violence. The Israeli government is divided over how to tackle the surging violence, with members of far-right parties, including Minister of National Security Itamar Ben-Gavir, urging a harsher response, including the demolition of homes belonging to the families of Palestinians, identified as having committed attacks. We prefer terrorists in the grave and not in prison, Tzvi Sukkot, a member of the Knesset from Ben-Gavir's party, said in response to the shooting. Russian court extends pretrial detention of Jewish journalist Evan Gershkovitz, uh, Evan Gershkovich, until November by Jackie Hajdenberg. A Russian court has extended the pretrial detention of Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich for another three months. In a hearing last Thursday at the Fortovo District Court that was closed to press, 
the judge ordered Gershkovich to remain in detention until at least November 30th, a court spokeswoman said. Investigators from the FSB, a Russian state security agency, had requested the extension. Gershkovich, 31, is the American-born son of Jewish refugees from the Soviet Union. He was arrested while on a reporting trip in the city of Yekaterinburg on March 29th and charged with espionage. Gershkovich, the Wall Street Journal, and the United States government deny the charges. If convicted, he would face up to 20 years in a penal colony. Gershkovich's pre-trial detention was initially scheduled to end on May 29th before it was extended until August 30th. This latest extension until November means he could remain in jail for eight months following his arrest, if not longer, before a trial begins. In some criminal cases, according to Russia's criminal procedure code, pre-trial detention can be extended for up to 12 months following arrest. But in other instances, courts grant further extensions as prosecutors and investigators prepare their case, the Wall Street Journal reported. At a news conference in, in Helsinki last month, President Biden said the United States was serious about a prisoner exchange, which American officials have long seen as the most plausible way of securing Gershkovich's freedom. In 2022, the United States obtained the release of WNBA player Brittany Griner, who was imprisoned in Russia, via a prisoner swap. I'm serious about doing what we can to free Americans being illegally held in Russia or anywhere else for that matter, Biden said, and that process is underway. But in a briefing last month, White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, who met with representatives from the Wall Street Journal and Gershkovich's family, said he did not want to give false hope uh, about bringing him home. There have been discussions, but those discussions have not produced a clear pathway to a resolution. And so I cannot stand here today and tell you that we have a clear answer to how we are going to get Evan home, Sullivan said. Russian officials have previously hinted at a prisoner exchange, but discussions of a possible swap have hit roadblocks, according to the journal, as the United States has been unable to extradite Russian prisoners held in German and Brazilian custody. Russia has not appeared to express any interest in prisoners currently in U.S. custody. The journal has reported that any consideration of a swap involving Gershkovich would have to wait until after a verdict is reached in his case and that Russia may delay a prisoner exchange until after the 2024 presidential election in order to exacerbate discord in the United States. Next from JTA, a medieval massacre nearly wiped out the Jews of York, England. New research shows how the community recovered by Jackie Hodgdenberg. Earlier this month, the small Jewish community in the British city of York celebrated the arrival of a new rabbi. It's first since the city's Jewish community was nearly wiped out in a pogrom in 1190, or so they thought. Just weeks after the new rabbi, Elisheva Salomo, arrived in the city, a team of researchers has discovered that Jews in York rebuilt their community in the decades after the pogrom, though they still faced anti-Semitism in the years leading up to the expulsion of Jews from England in 1290. In findings published this week, a team of researchers from the University of York have found the location of the city's first synagogue and discovered how in the years after 1190, leading figures from the Jewish community cooperated with local church leadership in purchasing a stone building that became the city's guild hall, which functioned at the time as a civic center. 
The amount of new information that has been uncovered by the team is truly inspiring, Howard Duckworth, warden of the York Synagogue, said in a statement. We have discovered a totally new history of Jews in York, which for many years has been overshadowed by the massacre at Clifford's Tower. This research is so much more a real history anyone can relate to. When you walk through York now, you see York with totally different eyes. The researchers were part of a project called Street Life York, which hopes to revitalize and diversify the city's main street called Coney Street, in part by learning about its more than 1,000-year history. The researchers focused on Jews who lived on Coney Street during the 1200s. The massacre of York's Jews in 1190 has overshadowed the fact that from the 1210s onward, there was once a more thriving, uh, once more a thriving Jewish community living and working in the city in mostly harmonious relations with their Christian neighbors, read an announcement from the university. It added that the chief Jewish citizens of the city were also some of the most important figures in England. In the 1190 massacre, which occurred on the Shabbat before Passover, the Jews of York sought refuge in a tower in the king's castle as anti-Semitic rioters intended to forcibly convert them to Christianity or kill them. The city's Jews chose to kill themselves rather than convert, and approximately 150 people are estimated to have died in the pogrom. Basing their designs on survey, uh, surviving medieval houses in York, the researchers digitally reconstructed the homes of prominent Jewish leaders of York following the massacre, including an uncle and nephew pair, Leo, Episcopus, and Aaron of York, Aaron's wife, Hannah, and his nephew, Josquet Le Joven. The researchers also found the exact locations of homes of the two leading members of the Jewish community that existed prior to the program in 1190. They also found that the community's first synagogue was located on the back plot of Aaron of York's house. Leo and Aaron served as representatives of the whole Jewish community of England, and for a time Aaron was considered the richest man in the country. The digital reconstruction found that although the synagogue was close to a church, there was no evidence of direct conflict between the two religious communities. But the synagogue and others in the country did face discrimination from the king. A 1253 royal statute proclaimed in their synagogues the Jews should all subdue their voices when performing their ritual offices so that Christians shall not hear them. Jews were persecuted in other ways as well. In 17, uh, rather in 1279, Josquet Le Joven, a moneylender, and his son, who was also named Aaron, were hanged for felony, though their crimes were not specified according to researchers. During this period, hundreds of Jews were being rounded up and apprehended at the Tower of London on the charge of coin clipping, namely trimming bits of silver from coins to create new money, the research project says. While some Jews managed to escape by paying hefty fines or converting to Christianity, many faced severe sentences, including death. In 1290, the Jews were expelled from England, for the most part. They were not permitted to return to England until 1656. And next from JTA, Malka Leifer, Australian day school principal, convicted of child sex abuse, sentenced to 15 years, by Felissa Kramer. 
Malka Leifer, a former principal at an Australian school for Orthodox girls who was convicted in April of abusing students in her care, has been sentenced to 15 years in prison. The sentencing marks a conclusion to a 15-year saga that at times strained relations between Australia and Israel, where Leifer fled in 2008 amid allegations that she had abused students at Melbourne's Otis Israel School for Haredi Orthodox girls. She was not extradited to Australia until 2021, following a sustained campaign by three sisters who said Leifer had abused them. The sisters, Dasi Ehrlich, Ellie Sapper, and Nicole Meyer, were in court to hear the sentence handed down according to local media reports, while Leifer watched via video from a high-security women's prison. Leifer was convicted of 18 of 27 charges. She was acquitted of the charges related to Meyer. She will spend a minimum of 11 and a half years in prison. I'm satisfied that the sentence matches the severity of the offending, said Daniel Agion, president of the Jewish Community Council of Victoria, the Australian state where Melbourne is located, in a statement. On behalf of the JCCV, I express an overwhelming sense of relief that this process has concluded. Every person in the Victorian Jewish community has a responsibility to do our utmost to protect children from harm. We stand with Dossie, Nicole, and Ellie, whose courage and tenacity is an example to us all. The judge who set the sentence said he had weighed Lifer's lack of remorse. She has always denied the allegations against her and her efforts to avoid prosecution, which included exaggerating her mental and physical health challenges in Israel. Last year, a former Israeli government minister, Yaakov Litzman, admitted to abusing his powers to try to protect Leifer from prosecution. Litzman, a Haredi Orthodox politician, resigned from Israel's parliament, the Knesset, and was sentenced to probation and a nominal fine as part of his plea deal. While the Australian court heard accounts of how board members at Adas Israel helped Leifer flee to Israel before she could be arrested in Melbourne, Australian authorities said in April that they would not charge anyone there with aiding Leifer's flight, citing a lack of evidence. This is a momentous day not only for those who survived Malka Leifer's abuse, but also for the cause of justice. Peter Wertheim, co-CEO of the Executive Council of Australian Jewry, said in a statement about the sentence. We sincerely hope the survivors can find some closure after so many years of being denied justice. Next from JTA, Mikva discovered in basement of former strip club in Poland by Jacob Gorvis. Before the Holocaust, the population of the town of Chmielnik, Poland, was around 80% Jewish. Sephardic Jews, having been expelled from Spain during the Inquisition, settled in Chmielnik and eventually built a synagogue in 1638. After the war, only four Jews remained. Today, the building houses a museum of the town's Jewish life and history. Now another Jewish heritage site has been discovered in an unlikely place. A few years ago, Marian Zwalski, a businessman from Melnik, purchased a former nightclub that had been closed for 15 years. When he opened the door to the basement of his new property, he discovered something unexpected, a mikvah or Jewish ritual bath. 
The bath's blue and white floor tiles are still there, as are stars of David on the wall. A smaller mikvah, likely used by women, is in a neighboring room. It's astonishing, said Meyer Bolka, who advocates for the preservation of Jewish heritage in Poland in an interview with Haaretz. You enter the basement, and you're in another world. It's like a time capsule. Just up the stairs from the mikvah, which is full of water, are remnants of the former Sphinx Club, a Heineken sign, a pole for strippers, decorations of ancient Egypt, and plenty of mold and leaks, according to the Haaretz report. Zwolski, who also operates a funeral home in nearby Kielce, the site of a 1946 pogrom that killed 42 Jews, told Haaretz he is hoping to turn his new mikvah into a tourist attraction, possibly a museum. I was born and raised here, so I care about the history of the place. I don't want it to disappear, Zwolski says. I encourage the people to remember the past, and I also call on you, the Jews, to preserve it and see to it that it is memorialized. And next to Pastrami Sandwich is a new star of Tokyo's hip food scene by Jordan Haim. Tokyo. Smoky flavor has always tasted like home for Jeremy Freeman. Growing up in New York City, smoked salmon was of course a staple alongside his daily whitefish salad on a bialy from Russ and Daughters. His favorite pastrami came from the long-closed Galitza's Deli around the corner from his childhood home, which sold the smoked meat in unusually thick slices. After meeting his now wife, Maiko, the couple moved from Manhattan to Brooklyn, where Freeman had access to something new, a backyard. When he wasn't selling vintage Jamaican records at his shop, and when Maiko wasn't manning her Japanese homestyle food stall at Brooklyn's Smorgasbord Food Market, they began to host barbecues, and Freeman began experimenting with smoking his own meats. In 2017, when the couple decided to move to Japan, Maiko's home country, to raise their kids, Freeman got serious about his barbecue craft and decided to bring a taste of his favorite Jewish-American comfort staples to Japan. The Freemans opened Freeman Shokudo, located in Hitagaya, a quiet neighborhood in Tokyo's otherwise bustling Shibuya to business district, in 2021. It has flourished in the city's competitive restaurant scene. On a recent weekday, Freeman was antsy as a lunch rush flooded the restaurant just before closing for the afternoon at 3 p.m. Nearly every table filled once again just a half hour after it reopened for dinner at 6. The restaurant really revolves around my memory and flavors that I like that are reflective of New York City, Freeman said before customers began to trickle in for dinner. Freeman, who manned the kitchen alone on this reporter's recent visit, uses a custom-built smoker made with Japanese oak. The customer base is about half Japanese and half foreigners, its reputation among Jewish transplants has allowed Freeman to practice what has become a favorite monthly tradition of preparing a true Nana-style brisket, smoked leftover brisket ends braised with tomatoes, onions, and garlic, served with lots of sour cream and dill. Whenever we have that, a lot of the Hebrews want to come out and partake, Friedman said. But Friedman Shaduko, uh, Shokudo doesn't limit itself to Jewish classics. Also on the menu are some deeply unkosher choices. Spare ribs, barbecue pork belly, and smoked pork sausages. Gumbo served over rice has become popular, and a variety of fresh Middle Eastern salads balance out the rich meats. 
The flavors being served up, though distinctly Jewish and American, are not entirely strange to the Japanese palate. Fatty smoked or grilled meats served alongside tangy, sour pickles makes for a combination of flavors and textures that is often replicated at Japanese barbecue joints. While Freeman doesn't consider his establishment a fusion restaurant, locally available staples often make useful stand-ins for Eastern European or American ingredients that are not available in Japan. Smoked saba, a Japanese blue mackerel, takes the place of American whitefish salad on bialis that are made on demand from a Japanese bakery in the neighborhood. Pickled plums are incorporated into the barbecue sauce, and daikon radishes are added to the saba salad and pickles. While Freeman describes his restaurant as a home for American soul food, he sees the Jewish tradition of smoking meats and fish as essential to the true soul of the craft. My feeling is that America has always claimed to be like the home of the barbecue, and it's supposed to reflect this very American sensibility, but I think that's total bull, basically, he says. Jews have always had a history of smoked fish, smoked meat, incorporating smoke into their flavors, and incorporating spices that were coming from Asia through the Silk Road. I think pastrami really reflects a combination of Eastern spices and Western smoking techniques. It's kind of a perfect East-West combination. Freeman grew up in a deeply socialist, deeply a-religious family of Jewish immigrants from Belarus. His father was a Trotskyite who had no time for religion whatsoever. The celebration of Passover made an appearance once in a while throughout his childhood, but Freeman describes his family as strong cultural Jews bound together by the cultural glue of food. As he got older and started a family, Freeman found himself immersing more in religion. He had a late-in-life bar mitzvah, and while he doesn't consider his family to be religious, they celebrate Passover each year. Paul Golan, an Ashkenazi Jew who is bringing up two children with his Japanese wife and helps run the Japanese Facebook page, makes annual visits back to Tokyo where he used to live. He noted that a branch of the San Francisco Jewish Deli Wise Sons closed last year, a few years after opening in Tokyo, leaving a gap in the local Jewish food market that Freeman stepped in to fill. Freeman Shokudo is taking it to another level, he said. Golan enjoyed his recent visit to the restaurant not only through the food, but also through its mix of New York nostalgia and nods to Japanese culture. From a menorah on display in the middle of the small water spring to the Freeman-branded onsen head towels available for sale. Golan felt reminded of long-ago vodka-fueled nights at Sammy's Romanian in Manhattan. It was just a great connective moment to have in Tokyo, he said. The pastrami sandwich has become the shop's most well-known offering. The small size of the Freeman pastrami sandwich costs 2,400 yen, that's $17.54 in American dollars, more expensive than a typical meal in Japan, but the meat effortlessly falls apart when bitten into. And unlike the enormous sandwiches served at many New York delis, it is far from an overwhelming amount of food. We make food that makes people feel good. It comes from a very loving place. And I think that speaks across all sorts of different tastes and cultures. That's what we're trying to do, is to make food that's human and real, Freeman said. And next from JTA, Golda focuses on a few grim weeks in the life of Israel's first female prime minister. A biographer wants you to see the bigger picture. By Andrew Silo Carroll. 
Golda, the new biopic starring Helen Mirren as Israel's first and so far only female prime minister, focuses on the few terrible weeks late in her life that would in some ways seal Golda Bayer's legacy. On Yom Kippur 1973, 50 years ago, Egypt and Syria, Syria led a sneak attack on Israel that, in its stealth and fury, erased the euphoria that followed Israel's lightning victory six years earlier in the Six-Day War. The public blamed Meir for Israel's lack of preparation. She resigned in 1974, and her reputation, particularly in Israel, has never really recovered. For Meir defenders, her legacy has often been obscured by misogyny and condescension. Biographers like Francine Clagsbrun in 2017's Lioness and Deborah Lipstadt, whose Golda Meir, Israel's matriarch, was published this month, argue for a fuller, more generous assessment of Meir. They recall a Zionist pioneer born in present-day Ukraine in 1898 and raised in Milwaukee who helped shape public opinion about the nascent Jewish state in the United States and ignited American Jewish fundraising for its cause labor Zionist activist who helped establish the Israeli welfare state that sustained the country and its waves of immigrants through the 1980s, and a foreign minister who, over a decade, forged important alliances with the French, the United Nations, and most importantly, the United States. In The Only Woman in the Room, Golda Meir and Her Path to Power, which came out late last year, Penina Lahav picks up on these themes and develops another. How Mayer, adamant in not calling herself a feminist, nevertheless refused to be defined by the traditional roles set out for her, and instead forged a path for other women in politics. Lahav, born in Israel, is an emerita professor of law and a member of the Elie Wiesel Center for Judaic Studies at Boston University. We spoke this week about the ways Meyer has been underestimated, how she defied the Jewish grandmother and uh, grandmother stereotype, and how a flawed leader can also be considered a great one. Our conversation was edited for length and clarity. Your book asks us to consider the ways Golda Meyer succeeded as a woman in a man's world, but also asks that we judge her by the standards of Israel's other male leaders, both in her accomplishments and in her flaws. What did you discover in your research that may have changed your perception or the public's perception of her as a leader? As I learned about her decision-making, the way she conducted foreign affairs, I came to respect her more and more. I did not expect to see a very savvy, very experienced and caring person as I saw at the end. I wanted to give the book as a gift to the Israeli people, particularly to Israeli women, to say to them that we also have great leaders. It's not only Moshe Dayan and David Ben-Gurion. Golda was a great leader. She understood exactly what was going on. She was capable of making important policy. She had a very good relationship with the American administration, and we should very, be very proud of her rather than putting her down. Israelis have a tendency to look down and us to underestimate her as someone who was not really up to the job. I think it's a big, big mistake. Before we look at her political career, I wanted to step back. She grew up in Milwaukee, but was born in Kyiv at a time when Jews were experiencing persecution and pogroms. How much did that shape who she became? I think very little. Before coming to America, she was a little girl. 
She was not subjected to a pogrom. Let's not forget, she used the pogrom as a PR piece. She used it to extol the significance of Zionism. Outside of Israel, we are subjected to pogroms. Inside, we are protected. That was a pitch she used effectively in the 1930s before she became a central figure in Israeli politics. After moving to Palestine in 1921, she would regularly travel back to the States to fundraise and promote the labor Zionist cause here to groups like Pioneer Women and other Jewish groups. To what degree did she create the image of Israel in the minds of American Jews? She's the one who laid the foundation for a very strong relationship with the American government and the American people. One of the reasons for this was that she was an American. She knew how to speak to them. It's not only the language, but the body language, the culture. Other leaders who grew up in Germany or Holland or even in England did not understand the American instinct in the same way. She always kept her Midwestern accent, and that was very important because it communicated an affinity with the United States. A lot of the American Jewish establishment was not really keen on Zionism before Israel's establishment, but she was speaking directly to working-class Jews who came to view it as a place, if they weren't going to move to, that they wanted to support and build. For many of them, it was a haven. If something happened, God forbid, we have a place to protect us. She knew how to play on this. Golda graduated from a school for teachers in Milwaukee, but all of her education in statecraft and foreign policy was on-the-job training. What were her strengths in becoming a spokesperson and diplomat? As I did the research, it was interesting to me how attentive she was to other views. She was always willing to consult, always willing to listen. She didn't always accept your advice, but she always took it into consideration. I thought it was a very important thing. I would also say that the men that she befriended, such as David Remez, Israel's first minister of transportation, who was her lover for many years, also influenced her in terms of foreign affairs. They were very, very experienced and educated people, and she relied on them to learn and expand her views. She knew how to choose her friends like Zalman Shazar, who eventually became president of Israel. These were the people that she socialized with and associated with. She didn't go to school, so she basically absorbed information and analysis from the people that she was socializing with. Golda was 70 when she became prime minister in 1969 and 75 when she resigned in the wake of the near debacle of the Yom Kippur War, which in some ways became her legacy, but you, like others, argue for a more complete portrait of what she accomplished as a leader before and after the establishment of the state. I'm afraid many people today in Israel forget Golda, and many people remember Golda negatively because of the Yom Kippur War, which they tend to blame her for. It's not entirely fair. There was a lot of bias against Golda over time, and the reason is basically misogyny. People did not like the idea that they had a female leader, especially in wartime. She also had a lot of enemies in Israeli politics. So people like, for example, Shimon Peres, they did not like her. They were spreading a lot of information about her that was negative. She had to fight a lot of negative press. I remember myself as a student that we didn't really think much of her. It's only slowly that a younger generation like ours began to value her contributions. But at the same time, if you look at public opinion polls at the time, you see that the Israeli public was very supportive and very, very positive about her leadership. Golda's greatest contribution was in foreign affairs. She came to fame in the 1950s as Minister of Foreign Affairs, 
and she gained a lot of experience, which she then put to good use later as prime minister. People saw that she had a very good relationship with the American administration, which was the thing that really counted in Israel. She knew the Nixon administration very well. She had a very good relationship with then-Secretary of State Henry Kissinger. They did not always see eye to eye, but they had good relationships. They could speak to each other. They would try to persuade each other. You said negative perceptions of Mayer came from the Yom Kippur War when Israel appeared unprepared for the attack by Arab armies and lost not only 2,500 soldiers, but its own sense of security. What led to the negative impressions of her during and after the war? Did you find anything that showed that she may not have deserved that kind of criticism? First of all, before the war, Israelis were on top of the world, and she essentially made the same miscalculation. She announced many, many times before the war, when elections were being held at the same time, that we never had it so good. And suddenly, we found ourselves attacked by Egypt and Syria, and the feeling that we were going to lose that war was very strong, very deep. The change from the sense of security and the confidence to the surprise of the war was great, so she became the scapegoat. People will simply blame the leader when things don't go well. Still, she successfully made the case to the Nixon administration that it had to resupply Israel with weapons which helped turn the fight against the Arab states. Golda had great persuasive powers. Even if you disagreed with her, you'd slowly begin to see her point of view much more positively. What do people get wrong about her, either positively or negatively? I'm thinking how she is sometimes portrayed as a sort of quintessential Jewish grandmother, but was in fact a really tough and well-informed political operative. It's a tricky question, because for young people, the Golda that she was after the war was not the same Golda that she was before. So people look negatively at her after the war and blame her for a lot of things that they actually should have blamed themselves for, such as... Most Israelis made it very clear after 1967 that they didn't want to return any of the territories seized in the Six-Day War, which included the West Bank, the Sinai Peninsula, and the Golan Heights. They didn't want to return any of it, and they were not receptive to compromises. They felt the Arab side should compromise. So they were very surprised when they launched this war against them. And they were also very surprised to see that the United States was not 100% behind Israel and was willing to be more objective. And then they looked for somebody to blame and blamed her for not supporting a compromise with Egyptian President Sadat before the war. But public opinion, by and large, didn't want it. They were not interested in giving up anything. She also said that we could overcome anything, and one of the reasons for that is that her military advisors were promising her that any, everything was going to be okay and that we could always win the war. Did she have a blind spot toward the Palestinians? She gave the famous interview in 1969 when she said there was no such thing as Palestinians, meaning there was no independent Palestinian, Palestinian Arab state entity or identity prior to the creation of Israel. I wouldn't call it a blind spot. I think of it I think it was an effort on her part to cater to the trend in public opinion. The public opinion at the time was developing the view that there is no such thing as a Palestinian people, and she thought it was useful for Israeli foreign affairs. But if you look at her history, she knew very well that there was a Palestinian people. When she came to Israel, she saw a Palestinian people, but she slowly went over to this other view. 
Well, that's all the time we have this week for the Jewish News Hour. This is Marshall Weiss, and I thank you very much for listening.